Like a robin upon a tree Like a sailor that goes to sea Like an unwritten melody I'm free, that's me So bring on the big attraction My decks are cleared for action I'm fancy free And free for anything fancy Good morning and welcome to episode 754 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus presented by the Play Index, baseballreference.com. I'm Ben Lindbergh of Grantland, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Hello. How are you? The same. So that's good, if I remember correctly. Mm Mm-hmm. Good. You reading Roger Angel? Am I reading Roger Angel? Yeah. Like, uh, as he's... uh currently writing like am i reading the things he's writing about baseball this month yeah i have not been well you should i I want to recommend to everyone that they read roger angel i mean it's always a joy to read roger angel but usually he writes maybe a few times a year and it's always exciting when it happens but during the postseason one of the great joys of the postseason is that he writes a few times a week generally well Really, does he? Because I, yeah. I I always think about his postseason coverage as being uh, as coming in like mid December. Like there's always that he always has like this yeah. like eighteen thousand word article about right. <laughs> the season and the World Series that comes out in print in mid December. Uh-huh. So to me, this him writing in real time this year, mm-hmm. I I didn't I don't know this, but I would. I felt like this was new, that this was a new thing he was doing. Does this what has he been doing this for a few years? I think he did this last year too. I mm-hmm. I don't it's maybe he'll still do the end of year thing, but he's basically blogging during the playoffs, just writes about the interesting games or when a series ends, he writes something and it's a nice change of pace from the sort of stuff that you might read elsewhere. I mean you're not gonna get strike probabilities and stat cast exit speeds and pitch type percentages but there are no gifts but you get that from other places obviously and there are great pleasures to this that you don't get in the more statistical sort of articles and the great thing about him is that he doesn't say anything wrong like he he's not super statistical but he also doesn't just fall back on cliches or say things that are demonstrably demonstrably untrue he says true things. He just says them in words, which is nice. And they're they're usually pretty short pieces, but there's always a sentence or two that makes me smile in each one. And he makes the <laughs> these analogies that no one else would make because no one else was <laughs> born early enough to make them. Like he compared Game 1 of the World Series to an amusement park that burned down in 1944. Um, which probably no one else would do. And it's just a pleasure. So it's kind of like, you know, when people praise Vin Scully and venerate Vin Scully, it's nice that he is not only a legend, but he is still a pleasure to listen to. And Mm. Roger Angel is eight years older than Vin Scully, but he is still a pleasure to read. Yeah, no doubt. All right. There's nothing bad you could say about Roger Angel. There's nothing bad. That's, That's true. I think that you – there are people who don't like Vince Scully currently that think, oh, yeah, sure, he was great. Right. There are but, people who but, say he slipped. But he slipped in the and, – and, and that's fine. I don't mm-hmm. think anybody minds that a person slips. But it can be frustrating I think sometimes to – if you feel like the whole world is pretending or not pretending, either pretending or not, uh, that 
there that there's a different reality than the one you experience. Yeah. So if if you see Vince Scully as being like, oh, a, a great legend, good for the good for the world, good for the game, glad he's still around, but you know, a median broadcaster, as some people think, or even worse, and everybody still acts like he is the best, right. which maybe he is. I'm not saying he's not. Uh, then that can be frustrating, and then people fight, and then we have it, that is how we end up with two parties. And uh, <laughs> but there's no there's no there's no Roger Angel backlash, and no. maybe that's because you have to you seek out. I mean, Roger Angel is probably writing for one one fortieth of the audience that Vince Scully is, and tends to be the one fortieth that is prone uh, to appreciate him. Yeah. Uh, but there's yeah, there, I I have not heard anybody say he's slipping in any way, and in fact, if anything, like I think that the last couple years have to me been significantly better than the previous few Uh before that he's kind of gone through like there's like a little bit of a johnny cash kind of thing going where like oh yeah he was still doing things in the 90s it was fine there was nothing there was it was technically sound and Mm -hmm. it was better than most things uh but then but 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 now all of a sudden he's back to doing he's writing classics and that thing that he wrote and when you talk about the 90s with roger angel he's he's 95 so that kind of 90s yeah, uh, well, I also meant the decade. I know, I know. But uh, and I mean, I think the piece that he wrote about being in his nineties, yes, uh, about a year ago, is like a top ten written thing this decade. Yeah, and uh, in any form, format, any genre, by any author, in any medium, and so uh, yeah, I mean, he's really as good as ever. I also learned very recently that he was Woody Allen's editor in the sixties. Yeah, <laughs> and. That's an amazing thing to have on your resume. Like his humor editor. Like he edited his humor pieces. Yeah. I guess we both learned that in the same place. We both learned that in John McPhee's piece uh, about editing, right? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, read a, I read a Roger Angel book where he talked about the authors he's worked with, so he probably mentioned it in there somewhere. But yeah, he's, he's worked on all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Anyway, uh, maybe I will, if I have time, I will go read them, but everybody else should make time. Yes. All right. Well, game two of the World Series. So you recapped this game and you focused on some more Esky magic because there's always new Esky magic to discuss. But this was also Yost magic and the incredible revelation that Ned Yost manages even less than we thought. It's incredible, right? Not very much managing. (laughs) So that came up during the broadcast yesterday that Ned Yost doesn't call for bunts he doesn't call for non-bunts he just lets his players play he really doesn't do anything so he's what he's signaled for three or four bunts all year or something it was and the royals have bunted many more times than that so all the other times are times that players just took it upon themselves and he just sat back and watched with his mask-like face i want to go back and find I want to go relive what Ned Yost was like as a player because Ned Yost was such a blank slate, uh-huh. basically before this. I mean, he was a he was a fairly generic manager who came from a very unmemorable background as a player uh, that predates me, predates most of us except Roger Angel, <laughs> and uh, and but now he's become the most fascinating person in baseball. Like, what kind of manager? I mean, we the criticism I think of managers of managing that is most ingrained in BP uh, throughout, you know, throughout BP's history is just this idea that 
managers are hammers that see nails everywhere, right? They, like a lot of what we think of as strategy is managers trying to maybe subconsciously stay relevant in the game, that they're looking for things to do, that there's not a lot to do. And so when you get a chance to make four pitching moves in an inning, then by golly, you're going to do it. That's how you earn your paycheck. That's how you earn your feeling of, uh, of accomplishment in a day. And not only does Ned Yost, as you have, um, I, I, I want to say documented, but more discovered. I don't think anybody knew this about Ned Yost, really. But he is such a non-actor as a manager. He's, as you use the word, non-meddling uh, manager, is already interesting and extraordinary. You could already have a very interesting profile of a manager who simply doesn't do any of the things that other managers do. And not like he doesn't do them like he does other things. Like he just doesn't do them. Like do is not his verb. Yeah. And so already you're interesting. Already it'd be a fun profile. But the idea that a manager would give up his bunt power, that he would just give to Congress the power to declare war basically mm-hmm. uh, or to command the military – is incredible because the, the bunt is the manager's number one <laughs> power, right? It's like the number one job of a manager is to decide when to bunt. It sort of seems like it is like the it is the the moment they get to shine. It is the one moment when they essentially get to say, "Baseball is not going to be played like it's played usually. It's going to be played like I say it's going to be played, and you're going to try to hit it not yeah. very far." They get to make out the lineup card, which is kind of a power move, and yet he makes out the same lineup <laughs> card day after day. day after day. Yeah, <laughs> and so yeah, I I just think it's incredible that he has taken such a uh, lead from behind kind of mentality toward managing. I I really wish that. I, so the New York Times Magazine wrote a big, long profile about him a couple weeks ago, but I really want somebody else to, <laughs> to, be, on, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, and maybe I'd like Roger Angel to, actually. Yeah. Uh-huh. Anybody. Jeffrey Tubin could do it. Anybody <laughs> could do it. Just name a New Yorker writer, and it'd be good. And so anyway, th- this, was, this is, this is the, the, the John Lester discovery of this year to me, that Ned Yost doesn't call buns. Yeah. Especially because if you Google bunting Ned or something, I bet you'll get a lot of yeah, results. People thinks he bunts all the time. <laughs> exactly. Like the Ned Yost bunting baseball card. Remember yeah, that? Right. Last yeah, year it was I like saw a, it on Twitter yesterday. I think. A full on <laughs> meme that Ned Yost is like some fanatical bunter. Yeah. And uh, and in fact, not only I mean that's already misleading because his team doesn't bunt any more than average, mm-hmm. but he doesn't bunt ever. <laughs> Yep. It's an amazing thing, Ben. It's an yeah. amazing. It totally remake makes me rethink this series, this team, and baseball in 2015. <laughs> I wonder if when we found out, for instance, that Greg Holland was pitching with a uh, sprained UCL for mm-hmm. a year, and we're like, wow, it, it like it opens up this view that maybe the whole world is pitchers pitching with sprained UCLs, and then like. You wonder, like, how many pitchers need Tommy John and are pitching through it. And I didn't think you could pitch through um, a UCL in need of Tommy John surgery mm-hmm. uh, and do it, you know, moderately effectively. And that sort of changed what I thought about baseball and pitching. But I wonder now if there are other managers who don't manage, who, <laughs> I mean, obviously you do manage, like Ned Yost manages. He just manages in a way that is so much like i don't know both more multi-layered and flatter at the same time i mean he is he is like i don't know i i feel like 
I feel like he's he's like you try to read Faulkner and you hate it, and then you try to read Faulkner again and you hate it, and then one day it clicks. That never happened with me, but I feel like like he is he is the moment that it clicks. Like oh, now I get Ned Yost, and I love it. Well, it's it is hard to see. It was hard to understand, and and it was non-narrative, and then all of a sudden it clicked and made sense, and it's amazing. Yeah, well, you can see why it would work. I mean, in theory, because players love him, and we can maybe assume we can draw some kind of connection between the fact that they love him and the fact that he doesn't make them do anything. <laughs> he never like that's a source of friction for managers is when you move guys up or down in the lineup or you make them do you take them out of a game or you make them drop down a bunt when they don't want to drop down a bunt or whatever every one of those decisions you're potentially going against something that the player wants to do and then he harbors that as resentment and it builds and builds and the manager gets blamed for things that go wrong so he just completely removes all of the friction from the relationship by not telling them to do anything <laughs> it's just it's kind of smart i guess you could say that it works with a good team that is really just good anyway and and obviously i mean he he does active managing i think in you know personality wise i mean when the like you know helping keep word away from edinson volquez that his father had died and sort of briefing the team on how that was going to go and talking to Chris Young and all that sort of stuff is something that a manager could have screwed up easily and he didn't screw it up. So there's something to that, but maybe there just really is something to letting the players play because they will like you and play for you more. Although you could also interpret that as just a lack of assertiveness, like maybe with a different manager, it would backfire because the players start wondering what he's even doing there and why he should even have the power to tell them to do these things because he never exercises it. So maybe it's just something that works with his personality because he exudes command, and so he doesn't actually have to flaunt it. Yeah, I wonder how many bunts... I wonder how many bunts are made that wouldn't be otherwise and how many bunts are not made that would be otherwise compared to a typical manager. Because like you alluded to yesterday, the stompers for part of the season had essentially no bunt sign and yet bunts would get laid down by players and the idea the manager's idea behind this was they know how to play they don't you know they don't need me to tell them when to bunt like it was expected and I always felt like that led to more bunts Mm -hmm. than would otherwise happen because uh, there's more backlash if you don't bunt in a bunt situation than if you do bunt in a no bunt situation yeah and so I wonder if this if if Ned Yost does sometimes grind his teeth because bunts are made or if he's more likely to grind his teeth because bunts are not made or if in fact like baseball is baseball quote unquote strategy is so predictable and by the numbers in this way that it's almost completely indistinguishable from any other uh, bunting manager's strategy. Mm-hmm. Or yeah, or maybe things have just gotten to the point where small ball is smaller than it used to be i mean there are a lot fewer sacrifice bunts now there are fewer sacrifice bunts than there have ever been there are fewer intentional walks than there have ever been there are fewer pitch outs than there have ever been so maybe it's just gotten to the point where the norm is not doing anything 
And so the manager thinks he can just sit back and it's not like players will go bunt crazy because this generation of players is not conditioned to go bunt crazy. But it would be interesting to know whether he secretly hates these bunts sometimes but just goes along with it because he thinks in the long run it'll pay off in other softer factor ways. So that was the revelation about Ned Yost. So most of the other conversation about that game and probably about the series so far has been about the Royals hitting fastballs and that matchup playing out exactly as every series preview seemed to indicate that it would. Jacob deGrom not missing a bat with his fastball for the first time in any of his games and the Royals swinging and missing three times, and the Mets also swinging and missing three times, I think, but not getting hit, so no one really talked about it. But that seems to be happening. That like The worst nightmare of Mets fans coming into this series was that the Mets would just keep firing those fastballs in there, and the Royals would just make contact with all of them, and that is kind of coming true. But I wondered what you thought of DeGrom last night, because there was kind of a Twitter conflict about what was actually happening in that game, whether it was the Royals showing this preternatural ability to put the bat on the ball and spoiling good pitches, or whether it was more that DeGrom wasn't making good pitches and that he was missing over the middle and that anyone could have been expected to make contact with those pitches. What seemed like the more accurate interpretation to you? Well, first, Ben, I just want to note that the 30 most popular articles on NewYorker.com right now include no Roger Angel. So I I feel like baseball really might actually be dying. (laughs) Like there are two Andy Borowitz pieces on this top 30. There is an article on the end of the Kirchner era in Argentina that is more popular. And nothing against Argentina, but it's the World Series and it's Roger Angel. I'm surprised. All right. Yeah. Um, it's kind of buried on the – you kind of have to go looking for it. And it's like each one is like four paragraphs. It's not like a big story that you promote. It's just this little vignette. Mm, I see. Okay. Yeah, I don't. I think that DeGrom didn't throw good pitches. I've, mm-hmm. I've, I'm squarely on the didn't throw good pitches side. Now, that's – it's still hard to hit bad pitches sometimes. Yeah. And particularly because a bad pitch can often be – a effective pitch if you're trying to throw it a fastball outside and you throw a fastball inside well you might as well have been trying to throw a fastball inside like sometimes that's a really good pitch especially if the batter is thinking along with you and was looking outside so there is no guarantee that the Royals or any team would hit Jacob deGrom on an off night Uh, and so full credit to them for doing that but I mean he I thought that yeah it was pretty clear that he didn't know uh, where to throw his fastball and that uh, he wasn't sharp enough with the other pitches to sit on to to lean on those either. Mm-hmm. And yet, people are sort of reaching for these almost mystical Royals reasons that this is happening. I assume you saw the Adam Rubin report slash rumor that the Royals were picking up on pitch tipping with Degrom also, and he yeah. he cited a former Mets player who said, "I'm quoting, I can't figure it out yet, but they have something on Degrom out of the stretch. They better figure it out, or they can't win this series." And then another ex-Met who had read the first ex-Met's comment said, "He must speed up on his heater and a tad slower with other stuff, but I think it's in his facial expression. Seriously, so." <laughs> 
uh, are we just reaching? From, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're just the Royals make contact and therefore they are in everyone's head or, or they can read our souls and they can, they're expert body language and facial expression perceptionists. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I, probably, totally. probably nothing to I, this. Yeah. I, I, they've got a reputation that precedes them to the point that now people are going to go to that explanation quickly. But I mean, that's the, to me, that's the extraordinary explanation and you need to have evidence before that's your explanation. I mean, there are 2,430 baseball games a year with two pitchers on each side and you almost never hear about a pitcher getting bombed because he was tipping his pitches. And um, I don't know, it happens a lot uh, and we just don't find out about it. But it's it seems to me fairly rare that a team gets uh, wins because they they found a tell in the pitcher. There, there might be little tells here and there that don't uh, always end up helping that much, uh, but there might be little tells from here and there, uh, here and there that don't always necessarily mean much. Um, but I, I don't know. I'm, I mean, if if this were a world where the Royals could just pick up pitchers uh, tells this reliably and beat up on all the bad, they've probably done a lot better this year. Mm-hmm. Well, they did pretty well. But... They did pretty well, but you know they're not like. Like these are these were a couple. This is a good game against a good pitcher. It, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Well, it makes sense that a that it would happen more at this time of year, probably, and b that we would hear about it more, in that there is more focus on advanced scouting. So you're there's, trying harder. More media, more yeah, media. you're you're trying harder to pick these things up. I guess you could also say that the pitchers are better at this time of year, and so they're less likely to have tells. Well, so and also. And also, there's all, yes, there's more advanced scouting, but it, they also have never seen DeGrom before. And you'd think that more valuable than advanced scouting for finding a tip would be facing a pitcher 10 times, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Right? I mean, don't you think that, like, if, would you, if you wanted to pick up a tell, a pitcher's tip, it's more likely the fifth time that the Royals play the Tigers and see Shane Green or would you think it's more likely the first time they've ever seen Shane Green, but they've had three advanced scouts sitting on the Tigers for a month? Probably fifth time. Yeah, me too. So mm-hmm. that, that's a, uh, anyway. Yeah, I'm guessing it's not that. I'm guessing it's just a bad game from a good pitcher and a good game from a good team. <laughs> Those things intersecting. Were there any managerial moves that rose to the level of mentioning did you mind either of the non-hooks in this game well it's easy to say that the one that worked was a good non-hook and the one that didn't work was a bad Mm -hmm. non-hook but it's also it's also partly easy to say that because the royals had the margin to to let cueto basically go batter by batter which i think in an ideal world you don't pull your pitcher necessarily after 18 batters every time if you can avoid it you you do let him go as you know deeper when he can as long as you're not putting yourself in a position where it's too late so i thought it was kind of okay once the royals had a little margin that they decided to let cueto go real deep um it seems fairly obvious that john niece should have been pitching against the lefties in the fifth inning yeah that seems like probably one of the most egregious non-hooks of the year Mm -hmm. and i don't know i don't know if Degrom had I don't know what went into that. Maybe if Degrom had allowed 
two hits in the first inning, then he does get pulled in the fifth. There was this lingering, well, he's throwing, you know, he's got a no-hitter in the fourth. How can I pull him in the fifth kind of a thing? Maybe not. I'm not sure. But, yeah, that he wasn't pitching very well. The game was very clearly in the balance. And the Royals make it kind of easy for you by putting, I guess, Moustakas doesn't have a big platoon split. But they make it kind of easy by putting Hosmer, Morales, Moustakas, 4, 5, 6, like mm-hmm. that. That is that is going to one moment where you need a lefty. And they do a lot of stack three guys right after each other. Um, and uh, so they had a chance. Seems like a pretty chance to go quickly to uh, to Nice, and they didn't. So that seems like an easy mistake. What yeah. do you think? Yeah, I thought so too. And I'm still sort of waiting for the for them to take the leash off of Danny Duffy too. We've seen him for a couple batters at a time, and I keep expecting to see him for a bunch of lefties. Not that that was really needed last night, but he and Nice have turned into weapons and probably you could have guessed that would happen with Duffy at least certainly coming into the series whereas Nice's may be more of a surprise that his stuff has played up to the extent that it has in the bullpen but they have both deepened the relievers available to both managers and both managers haven't really used them all that much so uh is there anything else to say about this game? You know, I uh, you mentioned Duffy. Hang on, I'm looking up because yeah, I I'm sort of surprised that Duffy hasn't been a bigger part of this postseason. Now that you mention it, yeah. I I maybe they haven't. Need, I mean, obviously they're in the World Series and they're up two games to none, so right. they've they've done what they've needed to do to win a bunch of baseball games. But I thought the, I thought that coming into this uh, postseason that Duffy was going to be potentially a, a really big story. He was. He seemed like a pitcher who had the potential to be extremely good out of the bullpen. They had set him up uh, so that he was prepared for it, and he had a lot of success in September. And he is kind of the the one lefty in their bullpen who uh, can be both extremely dominant against lefties, but also potentially like a, a real like revelation in order to go into the bullpen. And uh, he's appeared four times thus far, and uh, and. Like, I think once for a full inning. And uh, that's kind of interesting, kind of surprising. I, I'm not sure if that's just because it hasn't been necessary. Uh, I mean, obviously, the Blue Jays don't come at you with a ton of left-handed power, for instance. Mm-hmm. And who do they play in the first series? The Astros. Astros. Yeah, they, they've got some left-handed power. But And so, I'm, you know, not saying – I'm not making it this controversial. Just noting that it's a surprise. If in my preview – of the postseason it was like uh danny duffy might be a thing and then he wasn't that's all yeah and cueto other than the other than the what the fourth was just (laughs) he was never really in trouble i mean what only lucas duda got hits in the game so he was just kind of cruising and he threw lots of pitches but there was never really a pressing reason to take him out so he just kept going just did the ned yost thing just Sit back and watch the players play, and you win the game. So that's how that worked out. And I don't know what else there is to say about this series. The Mets are not hitting, and the Royals are doing their contact thing. And the surprising thing is that the Royals have pitched as well as they have. I mean, the Royals starters, at least, particularly Cueto, obviously, who had maybe the best postseason start in Royals history, or certainly up there. So... That was not something that we could have anticipated. 
Obviously, they felt like he would be better at home. Maybe he wouldn't be rattled by the crowd or whatever, as he seemed to sort of be in Toronto, and who knows whether that is actually the case or not, but he appeared to be very comfortable last night. So, 2 nothing. Mm-hmm. And the Royals seem sort of unbeatable right now. Of course, they are not actually unbeatable, but if both teams continue to play the way they have been playing, then they will be unbeatable. So that's my analysis of this series. Mm-hmm. All right. So tomorrow we'll maybe preview the weekend games. Maybe we'll take some emails. So you can send us some of those at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. You can join our Facebook group and discuss anything we didn't get to discuss at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. You can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and you can support our sponsor, The Play Index, at baseballreference.com. Use the coupon code BP when you do to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. By the way, there's been a ton of non-World Series news happening, so if there was any sort of disapproval of news coming out during the World Series, that seems to have eroded entirely between Mattingly and Anthopolis and the Padres hiring a manager. I don't know whether reporters are getting better at finding leaks or whether teams are getting leakier or whether there just isn't so much of a stigma about releasing things at this time of year. But Or maybe uh, eh, it's probably not, but I mean the postseason is a little longer. I mean it's certainly longer than it was before 1993 and it's slightly longer now. And True. They, uh, it might just be that teams want to do business and they don't want to wait until, you know, four rounds of playoffs basically before they, uh, or, uh, you know, individuals themselves don't want to wait until four rounds of playoffs before they do the thing that affects their life to a great degree. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. So we'll have lots of baseball news backlog to discuss when we're out of actual baseball to watch. By the way, one last thing about our boy, your boy sort of my, my boy Verducci, do you find his propensity to toward one-liners distracting? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's, I, like, he's perfect in every way, and then he, he just comes out with these lines that sound pre-prepared, or they just sound like he put too much thought into them, and they're just too intricate and Oh, and they're really corny. bad. Yeah, they're, they're, re- they're, not, they're not even good. They're either. corny. <laughs> they're really bad. Yeah. I, yeah, I think it's. I think this is his version of the pundit trap. I think that uh, he's. Uh, you anytime you're you're in a role that is in public and you're getting some sort of public feedback to the role, you end up uh, trying to make today slightly bigger or better or more memorable than yesterday. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that he's probably going to bed at night nervous that tomorrow he's not going to be interesting enough. And so he's <laughs> scribbling down prepared uh, winners. Murphy and bed. Murphy bed was Nailed the it. worst. Oh my gosh, <laughs> Murphy bed was so bad. Oh, so bad. Yeah, that was bad. It's not even that no one has Murphy beds anymore. Like kids can Google it. But it was just, it didn't make sense. It like, doesn't did make it any mean sense, he was yeah. more comfortable in the batter's box or like he was just going to sleep in there? It didn't really make sense. <laughs> there were a bunch of those. I don't know. He's like a he's like a pitcher with a great strikeout to walk ratio who like just grooves one every now and then and has a high home run rate. He's like the Joe Blanton of broadcasting. He's better than that. 
but he has great peripherals and then he'll just come along with these super corny lines that distracts you from all the good stuff he's doing yeah i uh i don't even find them charming <laughs> the, the bad the bad puns no <laughs> yeah i'd rather he stop that i do too all right okay so we'll be back tomorrow